This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you have a Bible, please open it to John. We'll be in John 1, starting in verse 6. And so if you've brought a Bible or if you don't have one, we have them all in the pews as well. Just grab one of those. Open it up to John chapter 1. And in fact, if you don't have a Bible at home or you had one but you don't remember where it is or you can't find it, grab the nicest looking pew Bible you can find in this room. Open up that front cover, write your first name, and uh, we would love for that to be your Bible so that we can all be in God's Word together. So John chapter 1, we'll start in verse 6. But before we read our passage, let's just talk about Christmas. We're deep into the Christmas season. Uh, I can't even believe we're just a week away from Christmas morning itself. So that means that many of us in the room are probably well into our Christmas traditions and rhythms. My family recently moved into a house. And so what that's meant for us is we've had to work through a whole new plan for our decorations and how we're going to celebrate the holiday. That included standing in the aisle of Home Depot for 15 minutes debating whether we're a white lights on the Christmas tree family or a multicolor lights on the Christmas tree kind of family. We just had to figure out everything of how we're going to celebrate that holiday as a family, but also how we're going to take the new space we're in and make this a special time. For many families, every year, the Christmas season probably comes with an entire set of activities and patterns. We make desserts that we haven't really seen for about a year. We watch Christmas-themed movies that we love. Maybe we go to plays or concerts at different places. We visit Christmas markets. There's all sorts of things we do in this time and in this season. And since we're only a week away, my guess is we're all in the thick of it. We've gone to some of those parties we go to every year. We've eaten some of the cookies we have every year. And we're all looking forward to next Sunday. As a church, we also have an entire set of patterns and traditions. If you're not usually here, we don't usually have a 15-foot Christmas tree in our sanctuary. That really only happens this time of year. We put out decorations to remind us of the time of year. And then we also put a particular focus on the songs that we sing that proclaim the good news of Jesus' birth. We have extra services on Christmas Eve where we're going to gather together. We light candles and put them at the front of the sanctuary. We pass out an Advent devotional so that we can all be reading together as a church family in this month. And the reason that we do all this, both in our own homes and as a church, is that patterns and traditions can be helpful. They can assist in focusing our attention and our hearts. So we're able to, every year, remind ourselves of that story in a fresh way. The wreath and the candles that we pull out and that light reminds us of the light of Christ that grew ever closer until on that first Christmas morning, light burst into the darkness and brought good news of great joy. The songs that we sing retell that story of God himself taking on human flesh so that he might take upon himself our sins. A pattern of reflecting on the Christmas story and all those traditions that we have should lead us to long for Christ's return when we'll be with him forever. And it's oftentimes in the midst of these celebrations and the patterns and traditions we have and all the other busyness of the Christmas season that we might say to each other things like, Remember, Jesus is the reason for the season. 
We don't want that message to get lost. The desire of this sentiment is to help remind us that this celebration isn't just about gifts and trees and wrapping paper. We should remember it's about Christ's birth. But brothers and sisters, this morning, this is where we need to be precise. The Christmas story isn't just something to remember on an annual basis. It's something to believe. It's not sufficient just to have knowledge about the Christmas story, to be able to recount Mary and Joseph and the manger and the angels and the wise men. It's not enough to just cherish Christmas songs and have favorite Christmas hymns that we sing and carry out our favorite traditions. Christ's arrival demands from each of us a response. Either that we believe in him or that we choose to ignore him. The Christmas story shows us a savior come to earth, arrived on this planet and forces us to ask, do you believe in this savior? The Bible tells us that God sent his savior to rescue us. Will we believe that we're a sinner in need of rescue? Will we confess our need of salvation in the first place? When we hear of a righteous savior, Messiah come for us, Will we believe that if it means we also have to believe we're the unrighteous, desperately in need of salvation that we can't accomplish? Will we believe who this Savior is? That baby that arrived on Christmas morning was heralded as the Lord of all creation, Emmanuel, God with us. Will we believe that? Are we willing to submit our life to him and follow him as Lord? to where his words sit over us and we seek to live in accordance with what he has said. When we celebrate Christmas, are we willing to believe that he is the Lord or do we want to ignore that and continue to live as the Lord over our own life? And as Christmas rolls around, it forces us to ask, will we believe what he accomplished? That baby that was born in Bethlehem, laid in the manger, would grow into a man and offer his life as a willing sacrifice in your place? Will you trust in his saving work alone? Or will you ignore what Christ accomplished and try to save yourself through your own actions? So the Christmas story isn't just something we need to be reminded of. It's not just something we need to remember and cherish, it's good news for us to believe. Because when we hear about a Savior and a Lord come to earth, we are left with the decision, will I believe that good news and put my whole trust in it? Or will I ignore all the implications of God with us? Our passage today shows us this. Christ's arrival demands a response, and the world will respond by rejecting him. But God will provide a witness of who Jesus is. And any who believe in this Jesus will become his children. To put it more simply, our passage today shows us this. God adopts those who believe in Jesus Christ. God adopts those who believe in Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bible open, follow along. John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. I will read our passage this morning. There was a man 
sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Last week, we looked at the opening of John's gospel. And in that opening, John allows us to peek through a window and see the glory of the triune God working out his plan of salvation. So if you remember the the very opening of the book, those famous words, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John tells us that there is this word. And this word we learn is a person who is with God. And in fact, this word was God. And then this eternal word is a light shining unshakably into the darkness of this world. That's all just in the first five verses of John's gospel. We learn of this word who is God himself, who created all things, and then who has now shone as a light into darkness. And we learn that the darkness has not overcome it. That Christ shining into creation is triumphant and unconquerable. In the verses that we just read, the focus shifts. Verses 1 through 5, look at the word, who he is, what he's done throughout history, whereas verses 6 through 13 that we just read focus on what happens on earth, how that word is received and how God continues to carry out his rescue operation for sinful humanity. John changes the way that he talks about the Savior in these verses from what he said earlier. Before we were reading about the Word, but notice now we're reading about the light. He says that there's a true light that was coming into the world. We have John who's going to bear witness about the light. The light came to his own people, but his people didn't receive him. So all over 6 through 13, we're talking about light, whereas in 1 through 5, we were talking about the Word. But there's several markers that confirm for us that the word and the light are, in fact, the same person. First, in verses 4 and 5, John says that in the word was life and the light, and that light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. So we see this person who John calls the word is also the light of men. Secondly, in verse 3, the word that we learned about was credited with making all things. In fact, John even states it forwards and backwards where he says the word made everything and there's nothing that the word didn't make. He says it both ways just to confirm everything you see, everything you touch, and everything you don't see, the word made all of it. And then we see here in verse 10 the light credited with making the world. So if the word made all things in creation, that includes this world, And if the light made this world, that means the word and the light are the very same person. And the end of our passage last week said that the light, this word, shines into the darkness. 
and where we've picked it up in verse 6, starts to give us a clearer picture of what that looks like. So we see a messenger sent, but then we also see the light itself shining. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Before, John just said the light shines into the darkness. But now we start to see that unpacked of what that really means. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. To say that the light shines into the darkness is to say that God himself enters into this world. And notice John's language has gotten more specific. Before we were just looking at everything created. Now we're looking specifically at the world. God enters into not just creation or somewhere in this universe. The light, which is the word, who is God, came to our world where we live and move. So how does the world respond? Its maker has arrived. The creator, the one who formed us, who thought us up and put everything together through his word alone, how does that created world respond when the maker appears? John says the world did not know him. In fact, his own people did not receive him. So if you think back through the Bible and the history of God's plan of salvation, we know that God made all things, but then back in the Old Testament, if you remember, he called out and chose a nation and a people that were to be his very own, and they became the nation of Israel. And Israel was supposed to be God's people, which meant that they knew that he was their God, he would call them his people, and he might bless them and the world through them. But Israel was also the nation that was given the prophets and all of God's word to tell them that a savior would arrive. So if anyone on earth should have known to look for God's promised Messiah, it would have been the people of Israel. Maybe we could have given a pass to some of the other nations because they didn't have God's word, they didn't have his revelation, but Israel did. It had prophets that said, look for the Savior. Even specifically, look for someone born in Bethlehem. Look for someone who sojourned in Egypt. Look for someone who fits all the description that the prophets brought. Israel was supposed to be the people that knew what to look for. But what we see is that, like the world and like humanity, when the Savior showed up, they didn't know him. They didn't recognize him as the Savior that they had waited for. And so Israel, along with the rest of the world, receives a Savior. At least the Savior arrives, but then they don't take him in. When the creator of the universe shows up in his creation, in this world, he's not praised and lauded by everyone. He's ignored and rejected. Isaiah wrote, prophesying about Jesus, and said this in Isaiah 53, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
the maker of all things, the creator of the universe, shows up. And he's someone that we kind of want to just look away from and pass on by as quickly as possible. He was despised and we esteemed him not. When Jesus arrived to be a savior for his people, just think through how people responded. One of the first to learn of his arrival was the king of Israel, Herod. And Herod learned that there was this person born that even Herod's men were able to tell him, it looks like some of what were in our scriptures was written about this person. And Herod's first instinct is to try and kill this baby boy. Herod has no desire in seeking out this savior so that he might worship him. Instead, he wants to try to seek out someone who might threaten to usurp Herod's throne so that he can kill him. When Jesus grew up and began to speak with authority, and began to speak from the scriptures, his hometown began to try and ignore him. Try to dismiss him, remember, and say, isn't, isn't that just the carpenter's son? Isn't, this is Jesus. Like he grew up around here and now he's coming back and pretending like he's some hot shot somebody that knows how to teach the word. When Jesus demonstrated his power and authority through signs and miracles, rather than bowing down and worshiping him or praising him, the Pharisees were enraged because Jesus might steal away some of their glory for himself. Even think about as he was being arrested to be taken away and put on trial, his closest friends deserted him. The ones that knew him best, the ones that were closest to him and had the deepest friendship with him, deserted him and left him alone. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The creator enters into his creation and is rejected. He came to his own, to Israel, God's chosen people, and was dismissed, opposed, and ultimately put to death. So Christ's arrival, a king, a lord, and a savior coming to earth, demands us to respond, and the world did respond by rejecting him. And unless we're just going to sit here and try to think that we're better than those who came before, that's still how we respond to the news of Jesus Christ today. Left to our own devices, when we're confronted with Christ as a Savior, we tend to ignore our need for a Savior and say, we're, just, we're doing fine on our own. We don't really need any help. I don't require anyone paying off my debts. I can take care of that myself. And I certainly don't need to be changed in any way. And any change that does need to happen, I can muster up the strength and make that happen myself. And so the news of a savior that would say, I have a debt that I can't pay off, that I'm dead and stuck in my sin and need someone else to save me. That's something that I want nothing to do with left to our own devices and ways, we will reject God's offer of salvation and continue on in our deadly path of sin. That's what we do now. That's what God's people did when Jesus arrived. And so God could leave us alone. 
but in his grace, he intervenes. He intervenes in our own life to give us eyes to see and ears to hear who this Jesus is, to see the glory of the good news that I can be forgiven and experience new life. And he intervened in history so that as his savior arrived and faced rejection, we still might be able to see who he is so that we might believe. And the way that God intervenes can look so ordinary. Look at verse 6. John 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We've just been reading about the word and God and creation, light triumphantly breaking into darkness. And we come to verse 6 that says there was a guy named John. And so we learn there's God himself, the word, the light. But then also now we've just got this man. His name is John. And no, no disrespect to anyone named John in the room, that's not a particularly extraordinary name. Just seems like a, a fairly average person with a name that you might expect to hear anywhere. There was a man named John. But why does he show up? Because God sends him. In the other three Gospels, this man is referred to as John the Baptist. In Luke's gospel account, we learn that John's arrival had several similarities to Jesus. He was born to unlikely parents. His birth was announced by an angel, and he was sent for a very specific purpose by God. Of course, there are large differences as well between the arrival of John and Jesus. Jesus is God incarnate, fully God and fully man. John is, in fact, just a man, born of human parents. Though a great man, he's still just a man. And John would be the first to say that he in no way compares to who Jesus is. In every way, John sought to decrease so that Christ and his glory might increase. But John was sent by God. This puts him on the same level as other men and women we read in the Bible, like Moses and Elijah, the prophets, the judges, that God sent to his people that he might work out salvation among them. So there's a man named John, and he shows up because God has sent him. And why does God send him? We read it twice in our passage. To bear witness about the light. Christ's arrival demands a response, and the world naturally rejects and responds with rejection. So God sends John to bear witness about who this Jesus is so that as we see who he is, we might trust in his name and believe in his salvation. And what we see in the gospel accounts is that John has a particularly fruitful ministry of preparing people for Israel's promised savior. He would call people to repentance and baptize them to show that they were wanting to be washed clean. And then John is the one who's able to identify Jesus and say, that's the Lamb of God. That one right there is the one who can take away sin. And then John is the one who ultimately gets to baptize Jesus himself. And during that baptism, the heavens were open, the Spirit descended, and the Father declared that this Jesus was his very Son. And so John and his ministry gets to bear witness about this Jesus who's the light shining in the darkness. 
In your New Testament, in your Bible, there's four gospel accounts. And each four of these accounts tells the story of Jesus' life. Some start at his birth, others start a little later. And as you read through them, you'll see that the gospel writers all had different aspects of Jesus' ministry they focused on. And so there's some accounts that you'll find in one gospel, but not in the others. There's some accounts you'll find in a couple of the gospels, but not all of them. And it's not because they disagree with one another, but they're all focusing on different aspects of who Jesus was and different aspects of his ministry as he was here on earth. But at different points, there are moments in Jesus' life that all four gospel accounts will record. When you get to the end of Jesus' ministry, that last week in the last supper with his disciples, his crucifixion and his resurrection, all four gospels will tell you that story because it's so important. There are some signs and miracles that all will record because they particularly well demonstrate Christ's power. But one of the other accounts that you'll find in all four gospels is John the Baptist. He shows up in every single gospel and we see him testifying in all four gospel accounts to who this Jesus is. We see him baptizing Jesus, hearing the voice crying out from heaven and the spirit descending down. Which means that everyone in this room who has come to a saving faith in Jesus, in part has been able to do that because we've seen John's testimony about the light. God sent this man, John, so that all might believe through him. And for as great as he was, he wasn't the light. That's made clear in our passage. But he came to bear testimony and to witness that God's Savior had arrived. So John's entire purpose and aim of his ministry and his life was to point to Jesus. The world would reject Jesus, but God's messenger would bear witness and confirm that this was, in fact, the one sent to save Israel. That we didn't need to look for someone who might be more impressive or more have, have better earthly credentials. That this Jesus of Nazareth, this was the Savior. John was sent from God to confirm that for us. So we don't have to wonder who Jesus was. God has made it plain through the prophets and scriptures, through the testimony of John the Baptist, and then ultimately in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has made it abundantly clear, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so through John and his testimony, we're able to believe in God's Savior. What is it then that we can believe when we hear the testimony and this witness of the light. It's that the light has shone into the darkness. God has entered into this world and come as a savior to remove sin. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, that is the light, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Through God's work and John's testimony, we're able to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And when we believe, 
God gives us the right to become his very own children. God adopts those who believe in Jesus Christ. The glorious news of Jesus Christ coming to earth as a savior is that you can be forgiven of your sins and become a child of God. It's not just being forgiven where I'm washed clean, given a new start, and then kind of sent off to find my own way. The good news of salvation is both that I'm forgiven and washed clean, but also now I am brought into God's family. That my past is cleansed and dealt with, and my future is secured as a member of God's household. So for any who believe in the name of Jesus, you're adopted by God into his family and become the continual beneficiary of his grace and gifts that he gives to his children. Let's just think through just a few of the gifts that God gives his children. First is he frees you from the guilt of sin. For any who would trust in Jesus, there's no more work or effort left for you to get rid of your sin. Christ deals with it completely, wholly, and and totally in himself on the cross. So any who would believe in him as their savior, as they're adopted into God's family, you have no more guilt of sin left on you. Because Christ took it all. If you're a child of God, you have access to God in prayer. Sometimes I think it is extremely easy for us to take this for granted. Even this week as I was preparing this sermon, I try to start my my times of writing by being in prayer, and then I pray as I write and, and hopefully pray as I end that time. And I was struck by how sometimes prayer I'm not even aware fully of what's going on until I realized I'm reading about the word who, who was with God and was God and who made all things and shone into darkness. And every time I went to pray before writing my sermon, I'm talking to that word. I have access to the same God who made all things, who I see all throughout the scriptures. When I pray to him, I'm talking to him in real time. It's so easy to take that for granted, but we have access immediately. Whenever we desire to go before God, And he listens to us, and we can hear from him. Because when we approach him, we're not a stranger, we're not a servant, we're a child, we're his. A third gift given to those who are God's children is that we're guided by his spirit. Again, our past is dealt with. But then God indwells us with his spirit so that we might be transformed more and more into his image. And so we're going to start to look like a family member. We're going to talk like and act like someone who belongs to God's family as his spirit works in us. A fourth gift to being a child of God is that we get to belong in God's family here on this earth. That's what this room is. God has saved us, but then made us a people together, which means now as we sit in this room, for everyone who's trusting Christ as our Savior, we're brothers and sisters. God has connected us together, that we might carry one another's burdens, that we might love one another and serve one another. 
that we might exhort and encourage one another all to glorify God more and more. God gives us the gift of his family here on this earth right now. And this becomes for us just a glimpse of what it will be like when we finally get to have that first family meal all together with all of God's children throughout all history and time. The last gift that I'll mention, though there are many more that God gives to his children, is that we now await a redemption of our bodies. So our past is dealt with. God is transforming us now, but also as we're brought into his family, it means that there is a redemption working out in us, that we're totally saved and justified by God, but he'll continue to work in us until every part of us, which includes every part of our heart and our desires and our soul, but even to our bodies itself, will be completely renewed and redeemed and made perfect. And then God will inaugurate a new era where we all live in glory, in perfection, and all the pains and sufferings of this world are done. All the saints who have gone on before us and have passed away will be brought again to life, and we will together, as one people, bow before our maker and worship him together. So if we're in the family, we await a redemption of our bodies, our souls, to be completed, that we might have new eyes to see him face to face. And as we await that, it's not some long-distant hope. It's not a long shot. It's a guarantee that we're just waiting for the fulfillment of. So the good news that John bears witness to is that we're saved, but that means we're adopted into God's family. Christ's arrival at Christmas demands from us a response. Will you trust in this God as your Savior, or will you ignore him? So this morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus, then hear the Christmas story this season and know that you are living in darkness, separated from God, dead in your sins. But light has shone into that darkness. A Savior has been born, and new life is offered through the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. And if you've come in this morning already trusting in Jesus as your Savior, then use this season as a time to remember God's mercy and grace given through Jesus. But not just to remember, but also a time to believe once again and to confess where you've not fully trusted him as Lord of your life. To confess where your belief in him as Lord and Savior is weak and falters. Use this season as a time to rejoice that for all who trust in Jesus' name, God welcomes you into his family. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask as we look to your Savior, to the word and the light breaking into creation, that you would force us to respond, that we might believe in the name of Jesus, for we know that by believing we have the right to become your children. 
For any who have not trusted in you, I ask that that would happen this morning. For those that have trusted in Christ as their Savior, would you remind us of that grace again? Would you help us experience the goodness of your mercy that we might worship you all the more? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.